Welcome to a new episode of Walking the Talk. My name is Melissa, and today I'm very excited to welcome my new guest, Jasper Casey, who's Product Marketing Manager at Eggplant. Hello, Jasper. Hello, Melissa. Thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for taking the time for me. I invited you to this podcast because I think you have a very unique perspective on the startup ecosystem because right now you're working for a tech startup number six already. That's right. And would you maybe like to start off by telling people what do you do at Eggplant? Yeah, so I joined Eggplant in December, so very recently, and basically I do product marketing for them and content marketing. So basically that involves all the written communication that's coming out of Eggplant about our products, services. It could be stuff like user guides and, you know, materials to get people familiar with it. Or it could be more kind of high level stuff about, you know, like eggplants views on what we do, which is software test automation. That sounds very interesting. Is that the same thing that you've done for all of these tech startups or is it a new role that you are doing right now? It's kind of a it's kind of a new role. Like I've basically all the tech companies I've worked in, I've been like the words guy. So any kind of writing, starting with like blogging as an intern and then a couple jobs ago, basically writing my founder's emails for him um, to to investors um so anything that has words on it and as you get into slightly larger companies you know it becomes more demarcated like the responsibilities so this is the first job that i have that has like product marketing in the job responsibility um and the way i would just make a distinction between content and product marketing is content marketing is like everything from emails to social to blogs even like website copy and then product marketing is more focused on like communicating the value of what we're doing in a way for i guess for people who are kind of already familiar with the area maybe already somewhat familiar with the product or the brand to get to understand it a bit better it sounds like a very abstract task to me but at the same time it sounds very important because especially in these early stages of a startup you need to get word out there and you know communicate even more i don't know if more than like in a grown-up startup sort of thing but yeah i, I think the the main challenge is like I, this is the, the biggest company I've worked in, has about 250 people. Actually, that's not true. The company I worked at before was like a thousand, but there weren't, I wasn't there very long. So we don't talk about that anymore. Um, <laughs> 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 but, no, but the, um, uh, the challenge with doing like content marketing and product marketing is that basically every company could be better at communicating about what they do um mm. you know because there's always going to be people that you want to sell to that you don't know how to talk to yet there's always going to be audience out there that um you're either unaware that you're unaware of or that you know that you're not being able to reach right now or people that you are trying to speak to but you're just not doing it in an effective enough way so to me what i like about it is that there's there's always room for improvement and um you know you can measure it in lots of different ways like like how many people are clicking on a button that's like a very simple mm -hmm. one but to me it's more interesting on like a high level are people understanding what you do to the extent that when they are talking to your salespeople or your business developers are they coming in with the right questions um are they using the language that we've kind of chosen for this space you know are, are they aware of our differentiators and are they using those terms because that's that's the thing like a lot of tech products because tech products are i don't want to say relatively easy to build because they're not but compared to like physical things they they can be and you know the defensibility of your startup of your idea of your product you know it's easy for people to replicate the functionality of something like there's hundreds of clones of uber right so mm -hmm. the question is can you can you effectively differentiate it to people can you get the people that you're speaking to to understand that what you're doing is different and interesting and uniquely solves their problem in a way that perhaps other solutions don't you know what i just realized I actually messed up <laughs> the beginning of this podcast, kind of, because okay. I actually wanted to ask you five questions first, oh, like okay. five random questions, <gasps> and I jumped immediately to the question about what do you do? Oh, that's okay. I thought you were going to say you've got to hit the record <laughs> button, and I was like, oh, that oh, was God, good stuff. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, no. That I don't know if not. I can do that again. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. We'll just continue, but I'd actually like to still ask you those questions, because yeah, I think they're fun. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh God, I'm kind of all over the place today. So because I actually prepared five, I don't know if they're if you want to call them rapid fire questions, but okay. they're just five fun questions. So question number one, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a great question. I have never been able to answer that, but I can answer that now because I'm actually doing what I think I'm best at and best suited for. So I want to be a product marketing person working for an interesting company. Like that's my, that's my goal. And I've realized like, the space that I'm in, once you get into it, there's a lot of opportunity. And, you know, like, ultimately, I've, you know, I think as a kid, I always wanted to be like the the right hand man of, of the leader, you know, so the, mm-hmm. the president's chief of staff, or, you know, the sage old wise guy in ancient Greece, um, <laughs> rather than the person <laughs> who's actually making the decisions, the person who's supporting it with uh, advice or information. That's the in an abstract way. That's what I have always wanted to do. And in a more concrete way, I I think product marketing is a really good fit for me because it's it requires you to understand things on a technical level but also be able to communicate that with other people and and it got it, it, everything from like being able to explain what I do to my mum to you know being able to write something that like a, a CTO reads and identifies with and says oh I have that problem I need to fix it and mm-hmm. maybe this company can help me fix that problem question number two do you prefer Game of Thrones or Suits that's a good question I'm one of those people that never actually watched Game of Thrones what yeah I don't know oh my god my, my excuse is that I didn't have HBO but I, I know there's ways around that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have actually watched quite a bit of Suits. When I was living at home a couple years after uni, it was on all the time. So I watched that a lot. Mm-hmm. And they have very nice hair in that program. <laughs> I can't yes, comment on do. the hair of Game of Thrones. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I kind of flashed. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> Question number three. I thought you were going to say Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. I'd be like, Lord of the Rings every time, but that wasn't the question. (laughs) I have to confess, I've never watched Lord of the Rings. Well, put it this way, it's going to take you a lot less time to catch up on your um, cultural deficiency than it is for me to catch up on mine. So, (laughs) Then I'm relieved. Um, (laughs) Question number three. What was the last thing that you Googled? That's a good question. Um, It wasn't how to plug in a microphone. Um, (laughs) How do I check that? I just pressed the down button. Okay, the last thing I Googled, the last thing I Googled was uh, Lighthouse Google, which is a service from Google for like, website performance testing so if you go to web.dev slash measure um you can basically plug in any url and it tells you how it performs against certain benchmarks and like how long it takes various things to load and it makes like recommendations about performance and the reason i looked it up is because my girlfriend works for a furniture company Mm -hmm. and in online retail like speed is basically the number one thing for driving revenue and conversion so you know i had a feeling the site was slow and i just i just plugged the url into it and i was like here send this to your it people and they can quantify how bad it is That's what they're for. Yeah, I mean, it's the 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 degree of the degree of badness of the problem. Right, exactly. The first step is admitting you have a problem, and I think sometimes people don't realize there's fairly simple ways to get a proxy for it, at least. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I Google in my free time. It's quite sad. Describe yourself in three words, Mm. or if that's tricky, how would your friends describe you in three words? I don't know if that's any okay. Easier, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, this is one that I actually came up with for a friend's wedding. It was like his younger brother was doing a speech, and he asked all of his friends to think of three words that best describe his brother who was getting married. And I came up with three that I thought were really good, and I'm just gonna use them for myself in in the humblest way possible. The ideal audience, because I I love hearing stories I love talking to people that's where I get the most enjoyment out of life is exploring ideas with somebody having a conversation where you're not really sure where it's going but it leads somewhere interesting so yeah the the ideal audience but uh, yeah I don't know if that exactly works (laughs) I love it I don't care if it works but I love it (laughs) so that's nice and uh, question number five if you were a superhero what would be your superpower my superpower would be to be um free of physical pain unless it's like pain is quite a useful indicator that something's gone wrong so i wouldn't want to lose the ability to understand that i had like a broken leg but it would be really cool to to not have pain that would be because at the at the ripe old age of 32 my knee is really sore and like i can't really leave the house right now and it's 
driving me mad. So if I could solve that by not feeling things like that. Oh, I would love that as well. For me, it's my back. I have back Mm -hmm. problems, so that sucks as well. I feel you. (laughs) I feel you, Nice. Those were my five random questions that I actually plan to ask. I'd like to uh, build on top of one of the questions, namely what what you want to be when you were a kid, because you said you always wanted to be like the right hand of of somebody like the chief of staff of the president and I think that connects very nicely to because you're always an early employee in each of these tech startups I think you told me that in the very first startup that you worked that you were something like employee number nine so it was super early and that's like the the consistent pattern throughout these six ventures that you worked with you're always an early employee Mm. why why do you like to do that why do you like to join at that stage of a startup yeah great question and it's I guess in in post it's easier to identify a pattern over the time. I think basically I've, when I left university, my first degree in Scotland, I basically didn't really want to go and work for a big company. I didn't see myself in like a grad scheme. I was interested in getting involved with tech somehow. Um, in a very kind of nebulous concept of it. I think the first, in the first instance, my first startup work where I was the ninth employee at, at Due Deal in London, that was that was partly based on serendipity and, and luck and kind of meeting the founder, right place, right time. We shared an amusing anecdote about both losing our phones on the same evening. And I said, if I go to Kent and grab your phone from the taxi driver's house, will you employ me? And he said, yes. So... <laughs> that was how I, that's how I ended up in the startup world. And, you know, like the cool thing about startups in general is like you're working on very like you're working on interesting problems that haven't necessarily been addressed before or haven't been addressed in that way. There's a high likelihood of failure. So you're aware that, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice. For me, I'm I'm a fairly risk averse person when it comes to, you know, like I don't I don't really like gambling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I suffer disutility from playing slot machines or something it's just not fun for me mm-hmm. and I think you know being a risk taker is an important part of of being an entrepreneur so I think where my strength is it's in being a very inquisitive person and being you know at once you know I can be t- quite taken in by an idea but then mm-hmm. then I'm immediately after that I'm skeptical about it and I think that balance of being able to internalize concepts that people are telling you but then also question them and try to try to find the holes, try to find the counterfactual. I think that's really useful in startups because, you know, the the founder doesn't need just another yes man. They need somebody mm-hmm. who's actually going to challenge their their views on things. And, you know, the longer you get in your career and the more, uh, the bigger body of work that you have and um, experience to draw on, I think you can be maybe a bit more confident in your doubts, if that makes sense. Like maybe some things that I didn't understand about my first company, that was just a lack of experience. Whereas now, you know, if I'm talking you know I talk to a lot of friends about their startups and try to give them help where I can if I ask them a question and they can't answer me in a fairly simple way then it's clear to me that they still have quite a lot of work to do about addressing that particular topic and I think as a as a non-founder you're maybe uniquely positioned to do that because also like the success of the company and the success of the idea is not a reflection upon my Mm self-worth as a person you know I think that drive that entrepreneurs have is a lot of it comes from you know self-belief and wanting to prove people wrong and I think that's a really powerful uh, motivator Um, and I think it has to be counterbalanced with you know somebody asking questions that outsiders are also going to ask because you know you don't want the first time you hear about a major hole in your plan you don't want that to come from the investors that you're pitching to or mm-hmm. a customer that you're trying to win over you want to have already discussed that internally so that you can you have something to say to it i, I can very much relate to a lot of the things that you just mentioned um especially like starting from the fact that i'm also really risk averse very very risk averse yeah. i can also very much relate to what you mentioned about um the, the connection between a founder and then you know, if, if people question you or if things go wrong, it's not just a matter of, you know, failing publicly, but really a connection directly to your own, like how you look at yourself, how you think of yourself and your self-worth, and that you are in a very unique position because you don't have that. Well, you're in a different position and that allows you to do things that a founder might either not see or might not be able to do. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, and, you know, I think over time, you know, fa- like like we all do, founders... Uh, get better at you know dealing with failure and um, you know picking themselves up when things don't go so well Mm -hmm. Um, but 
I mean, you know, the 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 other side of this is that, like, as a non-founder, all of the companies I've been involved in, I've had, you know, zero or very little equity in, and, you know, that's a it's also a reflection of my level of experience and my, uh, you know, my sort of worth on the open market at the time I joined these companies. But you know, like. Uh, my advice to people who are looking to join a startup, not as a founder, but as an early employee, is obviously whatever like equity or, or share options you have, get that written down as early as possible. Because I've definitely, I think, suffered from not being able to formalize those arrangements. But at the same time, you can't rely on, you can't count on the fact that this is going to, you know, strike gold and you're going to own a sliver of that. You know, you should work there because you find it interesting and because you're learning and because you believe in the fact that you're solving an important problem and that, you know, you're going about it in the right way. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think getting into startups for the money is foolish, basically, because the, the probability of success is low and the it, it might distract you from the kind of more uh intangible benefits of working in them which is you know being able to discuss important ideas and you know being able to have quite a lot of you know creativity and freedom in your work and in how you address problems i think you have like you're the first person who ever you know puts this into words like this because all the other people i've talked to so far well maybe they talk about you know most startups are going to die they're going to fail it's not going to work but like there are so many good reasons why it's still worth pursuing this path if you feel like, you know, you don't belong in the corporate environment, maybe. And personally, I also have the impression that, you know, the roles of early employees are really, you know, not just underrepresented, but also undervalued in the startup field. Because in the end, there's only one or maybe, I don't know, two or three founders, but like the majority of people in that field, they are the employees and they can be early employees and have a huge impact. It's massive. Yeah, and I think there's also, I feel a lot of like, you know, pride about having been involved with the companies that I have because the, like, Judeal, they've gone on and they have, I don't know, 200 people now. And, you know, they have a, they have an office in, <laughs> they have a conference room named after me in their office. And I, really? I, I yeah, one of the, one of my like old colleagues told that me that. so cool. And I, I went, when I met Damien, the founder, a couple years ago, um, for a coffee I said hey Damien I heard you have a room named after me is it the toilet and he's like oh I should have thought of that <laughs> so, oh my goodness. so they missed a trick I, I it's just kind of I don't know it's it's like not a great analogy but like it's like if you you know went to school with someone who went on to be like a great mm-hmm. actor or musician maybe you don't hang out with them anymore maybe you don't have anything to do with them but it's like it's kind of fun to be like oh I knew them when they were 10 mm-hmm. you know that was fun I don't know I I guess in a more tangible way or like in terms of what you can get out of your career, like in a startup, you're going to be given more responsibility than you are in larger companies, like especially early in your career. Like I would not have, I would not be able to do the job I'm doing now if I wasn't responsible for all of the content output at uh, block data, which is a company I worked at in Amsterdam. Um, uh, you know, right around the time I was doing interviews uh, last autumn, um, where, where I got this job at Eggplant, um, Block Data had just been acquired by CB Insights, um, which was awesome for us because, you know, CB Insights was the company that we modeled Block Data after. And so getting acquired by them was kind of the ultimate validation of of that part of the mission. Uh, maybe not mm-hmm. of the product market fit and the, and the viability of the business, because that remains to be seen it you know it's a long journey but you know having your um your favorite company basically buy you is awesome and and that happened right at the time I was applying for jobs so it was an amazing thing to go in and say and like you know talk about they're like oh tell, tell us about your experience at block data and I'm like well you know I can take them through the whole journey and say you know we started it trying to get companies like CB Insights to recognize us as to to you know to model ourselves after them okay. and then finally getting acquired so I think, you know, I didn't get rich from working at any of these startups, like far from it. But, you know, even the ones that 
were a complete disaster, at least make for good stories. And by the way, just <laughs> to be true. clear, I don't include block data or due deal in the complete disaster category. There are others we can talk about later if you like. <laughs> sure thing, definitely. <laughs> but, you're, but you're right. I think, I think this is the perfect way to express it. There's so much, like non, from a non-financial perspective, there's so many things that can be so incredibly rewarding when you're part of something like that at this early stage. And you leave impact, whether that's a room that's named after you or you know you were there and you made it happen. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And and I have, you know, a lot of really fond memories of, of all of these experiences. And when I left university, I was 23 and I, you know, I had like a an economics degree, which is, I don't know, for people that don't study economics, that sounds uh, smart. But for me, I was like, I don't. I don't even understand how the stock market works. Like, <laughs> you know, so yeah, it, it's it it's a way to uh, to expose yourself to some really interesting people, and and it's you know it's not to say that you can't learn a lot in bigger companies because you, you absolutely can. And I think that my experience in the last year of working at slightly bigger tech companies where there's you know they have an established product market fit and you know a kind of unique sellable value proposition Mm -hmm. that's also useful because you can you can kind of see how people operationalize uh that and how you can turn like what you can prove is a good useful product that people get a lot of value out of and and i guess like turn the engine on and try to get try to scale that out to more people try to you know streamline the customer acquisition process or whatever so there's absolutely value in in doing those things i just think that if i had worked at eggplant in 2011 i wouldn't i wouldn't be very useful but that makes sense i mean it was a very different time and since then you've seen other things so when you now look at something even a similar project you would look at it with with a very different set of eyes compared to back then absolutely you mentioned before um, one of the key questions that a startup needs to be able to answer, or the people in the startup better need to be answer need to answer. Oh my god, is um, what's your business model? How do you make money? And if they can't explain that in a clear way and an easy way, it's not happening. I think that's one of the key questions where most people actually don't have an answer. Yeah, um, it's. I mean, it's like the. It's the million dollar question, obviously in startups is like, how are you going to make this commercially viable? The thing is, it's like the, the model is going to evolve as you, as you grow, as you develop, as your product gets better, as your understanding of, uh, the market and what precise problems you're solving. And, you know, I think it's okay to admit that you don't actually have a good plan for that, but I think with startups, it's important for them to primarily solve an important problem that, that people are really having. And there's a great book called Obviously Awesome by April Dunford. It's quite a short book. I, I, I listened to the audio book in about three hours and it's, I highly recommend it, Obviously Awesome. Uh, April, the author, she says that it's a book about product positioning and um, mm-hmm. marketing, basically. The key for positioning something is you need to figure out what is the least good alternative to your product so if you you're basically solving a problem that doesn't have a good workaround if you go to like product hunt you'll see all these amazing apps and sites that people are building and tools that do solve all kinds of problems but the problem is that if there's a workaround that isn't that inconvenient people just keep doing it the way they've always done it with with startups you know you you may create like a something like a crm like a customer relationship management software so like a salesforce or hubspot or mm-hmm. something but the important part is to figure out like who exactly should we be going after with this because you really don't want to fall into that trap of hey anyone could use this it's benefit for anyone it's like well the thing is if you're a startup you don't have enough money to market to everybody you need to figure out exactly who is going to get the most value out of this and who has a, who has the least appropriate way of working around this problem that you're solving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the, the business model aspect of it is, I mean, it's, it's the hardest thing and I think it's the thing that 
even like fairly mature companies still haven't fully solved. Um, I mean, it took Amazon, what, like a dozen years or so or longer to turn a profit. It was only really when people moved en masse to uh, Amazon Web Services that they actually started making money. So it depends on the appetite of your investors, um, how much money they're willing to give you, how many losses you can pile up as long as you're, you know, growing your user base or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's... Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not blowing anyone's mind by saying it's important to have a good business model. But I think the, the key part of it for me is that it's something which needs to be constantly questioned and constantly prodded. And, you know, you've got to kick the tires, um, so to speak, because you and you've got to be open to things that you may have previously ruled out. Yeah, because, you know, depending on how much funding you have and how big your team is and how ambitious you are, you, you have very limited time to to make things work so you know experimenting and being open to figuring out different and creative ways to make money out of your product or or at least get people using it is super important uh, but but there's i mean there's a lot of really good resources out there for this kind of stuff so i i don't want to wade too far into territory that is much better explained by other people Right. But what you said makes perfect sense to me. The only question I'm wondering about is, so you said you need to solve an actual problem. But so based on your experience, shouldn't a company figure out at that point already whose problem that is before going on and making a product for it? I would say that there's no correct order. These things are kind of all happening at the same time. It's a chicken and the egg problem. You know, things always start with the idea, right? Mm. Or, or some, or even some concept of a problem that you've experienced in your professional life that you're trying to solve. It's, it's a kind of constant evolution of, uh, okay, there, I have an idea that solves some problem, so I'm gonna uh, maybe start by interviewing people. I'm gonna talk to people in various sectors and see, yeah, does this does this idea resonate with them? Um, maybe I'll build a prototype yeah. that. Uh, I can walk someone through and they'll say, oh, that sounds really cool or that would be really useful for me. It's it's really a constant process of like, because even as your product grows, you may build features that seem really useful, but nobody actually touches. Like, you know, we had in uh, a block data, we built um, like a news feature that we thought was really cool and a game changer in the sense of it was the only like sort of live data feed in the app and it would be something that encourages people to come back every single day and you know have more engagement with the app the problem is we found that people weren't they were looking at it but they weren't using it in the way that we'd intended they weren't clicking on the filters they weren't using the search function which to us is where all the value was so um we were uh it's partly a, a ux issue um user experience issue but it's also maybe we're slightly misunderstanding um how important this issue is for people which is that they can't get news about blockchain companies quick enough Mm -hmm. so yeah I, i don't have a neat answer for you but the thing is like the the problems that you're solving the ways that you make money out of them the the way your product or service addresses these things precise people that it's talking to and the way that you're talking to them these are things which should I I think constantly be refined um, and experimented with and you know because the place that you end up if you if your startup is successful and it's still here in 10 years and you have loads of employees and you know um, you're making a profit it's not going to look anything like it was when you first came up with the idea you know Google started as a search engine and then became an advertising company I mean it's still the most popular search engine, but the money all comes from ads. It's important to understand that as a founder, your initial conception of the of what you are is going to constantly change and you really have to embrace that and use that to help you find more and more um, answers, ask more and more questions of, of yourself, of the market, of your product, um, of the problem you're solving. You told me before that a certain level of delusion is quite helpful in the startup space. What do you mean by that? And what other qualities do you think are important to succeed in that field, whatever succeed might mean? Yeah, so just for the the listeners, we had a a chat last week to catch up and 
kind of talk about this interview a little bit. And yes. um, <laughs> we, I, I mentioned this thing about uh, yeah having a certain level of delusion. Basically, like I relate it to my own personal experience. Like I, uh, I'm a very sociable person and love talking to people and whatever. I'm pretty sure I've have a certain level of delusion about my own appeal and that has helped smooth over a lot of cracks like in my development growing up like you know if I if I look at pictures of myself in first year of university I looked like I was 11 I mean it was it was hilarious I looked like someone had brought their like (laughs) their younger brother to uni for a weekend like as a joke and the thing is like I think if I if I was as self-conscious then as picture suggests that I ought to be then I never would have made any friends and I never I wouldn't have the confidence to behave in the way that I did and I think that so that that kind of lack of awareness about things that you know maybe we could judge ourselves harshly on afterwards is really important and in the same way you know startup founders do need to have that that delusion because uh let's say a healthy amount of it because you know the the odds of success are low and it's possible that you do have a really good idea, but is it going to be you that is the one that wins that, you know, that game? Uh, are you the one who, you know, I mean, Jeff Bezos is not the first person to think of cloud computing, but Amazon yeah. was the one who was best able to capitalize on it. And so entrepreneurs do need that self-belief and that idea that, you know, what I'm doing is worth it and I'm going to be proven right mm-hmm. on this. But at the same time, obviously, like you don't want too much delusion where you're you're not listening to the doubters because the doubters often have useful information for you. Mm-hmm. It's not not necessary that the people who doubt you are correct, but if they're asking those questions, other people will as well, and you better have a good answer. So yeah, that's that's what I mean by a, a kind of healthy amount of self delusion. Um, I think it's important for for anything. Um, any field that you do, whether it's like, you know, playing football, trying something on the pitch that you don't think is necessarily going to work, but you think it, you know, if you think it just might, it's that risk taking Mm -hmm. is really important. And I think that it's a quality that I've seen in all the founders I've worked with is just a belief that, yeah, this is going to work because it's a cool idea. It's as simple as that. But if that goes deeply enough, that can move mountains. Yeah, it it does. Because if you look in any big success story, there's moments where maybe an ordinary person would have given up or they wouldn't be working, you know, till three in the morning on this problem, or they they might have taken no for an answer. And, you know, it was the hundredth investor that said yes. And that was what gave them the capital they needed to, to, to prove their idea. You know, there's no there's no science to understanding when is when have you heard no enough it's you know like anything in life it's a balance between uh self-belief and self-awareness as well you know realizing where Mm -hmm. where you may be wrong about things that's not easy actually like it, it can be very difficult to admit that you're wrong or that you don't know the answer simply because we live in a in a society where that is often covered up it, like the, the the default would be to not talk about the things that you don't know or to not admit. <laughs> yeah. But that's the default. And I think that's a big problem, actually. It's, it's a massive um, problem. I mean, I mean, you look at politics. If if you're a politician and you change your mind about something based on new data, you're a flip-flopper. You're weak, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that's insane. It's like, well, surely if you've, after examining more facts and discussing things with experts you've decided to change your course of action like that should be celebrated Mm -hmm. or at least not um immediately dismissed as as being of weak mind Mm -hmm. and i yeah it it is very difficult to admit you're wrong um but uh to admit that you don't know the answer is perhaps the slightly more approachable angle on that and it's incredibly important because honestly the the smartest people i've worked with and the best business leaders are the ones who say I don't know the answer to that question that's a good question I need to think about that Mm -hmm. you know not every question has simple answers that can be thought up on the spot and many Mm -hmm. answers don't emerge for a very long time but I think having the humility to understand that you you don't know everything and you won't know everything is incredibly important and aspect of you know making making something work 
definitely. That also works for startups. Like when you're in big meetings with big potential investors, clients, partners, whoever it might be, and they ask a question like that, I think I think I would um, see it as a sign of strength if the other person just straight up told me, well, that is a great question, like you said, but I don't know the answer mm. right now, but I can find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, we don't have a simple answer, but here are some, here are some things that we've thought about that, you know, like, that maybe go deeper on the question because it's, you know, investors are looking for lots of different things and investors are not a monolith. They, they all have their own preferred style, their own personality, their own risk profile. But I think if you can demonstrate yourself to be a thoughtful person who listens, who is willing to entertain doubt and then can answer with confidence about things that they have a right to be confident about, you know, something you can back up with data. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just hunches, right? It's not just gut feelings. It's like showing, you know, I, I anticipated that this person would ask me about this and I've already got things that I can talk about it. I, I've got data, I've got, you know, other research, I've got examples or counterfactuals that are going to, you know, support my position. During our catch-up call last week, you also mentioned that you would like to put more value to lifestyle businesses mm. or you would like other people to attach more value to lifestyle businesses. Yeah. Could you explain what do you mean with a lifestyle business? Because I think people have very different understandings of that. A lifestyle business is basically a business that can sustain the founders with a certain level of income to be comfortable um, and obviously pay, pay for whatever employees they need. It, you could, it's distinguished from like the ideal of creating a unicorn, like a billion dollar business, which of course uh, is also very nice if you can do it. But the fact is, you know, not, not every idea is going to become a billion dollar business. I don't think people should think of it as, you know, unicorn or bust. Like if we don't make it to the moon, then we're just going to burn up in the atmosphere. It's like, what about just mm -hmm. orbiting? That's pretty good. Uh, you know, there's definitely yeah, value in that. Definitely. Um, my, my brother uh, founded a business that I don't know if it's strictly uh, lifestyle, but it's certainly somewhere between the lifestyle and the much bigger prize. And I think it's it allows him to focus on basically building the best possible product that is the favorite thing to use in their industry. It's kind of an industry standard tool in the in the cannabis world in like Oregon and Washington and California and stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's super cool. My brother is a very interesting uh, and smart guy and he he's always been entrepreneurial. Um, th thinking about it now, maybe that's why I've never founded a company is because my brother was really into it and I saw the, you know, the challenges and struggles of, of doing that. And I maybe sought out a bit more stability in my life, but he's, he's got a really great business. And I think like what I liked about it is that, you know, he, he was breaking even after three months, like the, the problem solution wow. fit was so appropriate. And, you know, over time the products developed, it's evolved. Uh, he's acquired a point of sale company. Um, he's, you know, tried to cover more of the workflow for these uh, cannabis producers but what I really liked about it is that you know it's it's gonna help him do really well and he'll probably get to retire uh, much younger than I will um, and uh, <laughs> I I think it's just really fantastic because it's um, I think if he had he bootstrapped it I think if he had sought out venture capital early on they would have um, pushed and pushed and pushed to get uh, as much mm -hmm. um market share as much growth as possible and obviously those things are very important but you know building a really good product that is really valuable and you know turns a good profit and you know grows the company at a steady pace I think is really important uh, a job that I had very briefly in New York at a startup incubator that I ended up quitting because I just didn't think they knew what they were doing <laughs> and 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 the world <laughs> cup was on and Honestly, fair yeah, point and, fair and, point and, <laughs> the Netherlands had just beaten Spain and Robin van Persie scored that fantastic diving header where he looks like, like a salmon jumping out of a, a river. Uh, and I didn't want to miss any more of the world cup. So I quit that. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I, I, at that job, there was a, a guy came in and he was talking about how, you know, he, he was a founder or a co-founder of a startup that 
was sold for like a hundred million dollars, which sounds amazing, right? And he basically he was he showed a series of slides which broke down like how much money he actually made out of this. I was gonna say, well, hundred million sounds, sounds great, great, but how much? Like, what's his percentage of that? That's probably not that great. It anymore. boiled down in the end to about somewhere between a million and a half and two million dollars of cash, which is great. I mean, like, I would not turn that down, yes. but um, <laughs> that was over a period of like. 10 years of effort as well and like you know um they're they're one of the success stories they were they did really well and they got acquired by a rival and but if you looked at the the dilution each round of funding and all the various things ultimately still worth it for him to do but it's not it's not this clear-cut path to becoming super rich you know and 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 if that's your goal, you're bound to be disappointed. And I, I think that's one of the things that I really admire about what my brother's doing is because it's it's not so much with that in mind. It's just trying to build something that's really good. The the market will determine how how much outsized returns you get from that. I think that's incredible. Like first of all, yes, that would definitely be disappointing. I mean, I wouldn't be turning down one million dollars either of course i think nobody would nobody who's in their right mind would turn yeah. it down but you know let that sink in the company sold for a hundred million and you end up with one million that is sad yeah um actually <laughs> um but I, I i love this story about your brother because i also think that's something that's massively overlooked that's something that irritates me so much every time i hear it you know, in, in any entrepreneurship course, any class, any meetup, whatever, there's these two things, like the one extreme where they say, okay, you're dying as a company, you die because you're 75% of the companies, mm -hmm. you'll die in the valley of death. And then there is, you know, the other extreme where you're acquired or you're a unicorn, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. And I'm like, so what about that in between? Just because you're not a billion with a B dollar startup doesn't make you a failure. Like, I mean, if you if you make a million with that startup, that's pretty successful in my opinion. Mm. So I think that's heavily overlooked and also a big problem. Yeah, I think it, it could distract you just from the mission, which depending on who you are and what your goals are, if the mission is just to provide something of value that can sustain itself, can keep uh, a bunch of people employed and give you a bit left over in the end to buy a beach house, like that's awesome. I would absolutely take that. I, I would like that a lot. I'm looking at the time and there's still two more topics that I'd like to explore. You mentioned earlier that there is also huge disasters that might happen uh, when you work for a startup. So what is a huge disaster according to you? Yeah, great question. <laughs> so here's an example. I was working in Maastricht uh, at the university and that's how we met. Obviously, I was, um, for the listeners out there, I was... Melissa's tutor. Um, I think it was the first class that I was teaching at the university. Yes, and it was my very first entrepreneurship. Oh, wonderful! Course. Well, well, there yeah, you go. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> so yeah, so I was teaching, and then I did that for three semesters, and I was looking to kind of get back into the startup world. Went to the next web conference in Amsterdam. Saw a startup pitching competition. There was one that I was really taken in by super engaging presenter, cool idea, you know, ticked all the right boxes for somebody who's kind of looking for a new challenge. And I joined them pretty quickly that summer. And basically, like, I didn't, I didn't really get the economic model of it it's a blockchain startup it involved you know compensating people for doing work using their own token and i basically realized in in short that if this was successful and got adopted and more people were using it and there was also just hype in the general blockchain and like cryptocurrency market for this being like a kind of interesting use case that lots of people are engaged with, it would drive the value of their currency higher, which would make it more expensive for them to buy back their own tokens, which would in turn basically meant that the more successful they were, the quicker they'd run out of money. And which, That's yeah, which sounds like a really, yeah, it's like basically the concept of like, if you're selling something at a loss, like eventually you just raise your prices yeah, or you or you run out of money. So yes. anyway, so I joined them and I didn't really understand this model and I tried to express my doubts to various people at the company and they're like, oh, don't worry, that that's, um, you just worry about the marketing, we'll, 
you know, basically there was this assumption that there was like a brain trust somewhere that had figured everything out and it was perfect because they drew it on the whiteboard and it worked. So it kind of, it's something that you, you brought up earlier. Like if you don't, if you don't get it, it's quite possible that it's not, it's not going to happen. And it's not to, mm-hmm. not to overstate my powers of comprehension and that like, you know, just because I don't understand something means it makes no sense. But look, if they can't explain it to you and mm-hmm. if no one can, then that, that is a problem. If, you know, mm-hmm. if it doesn't add up, then there's, there's, that's quite fundamental. Um, anyway, so I joined and I, uh, you know, quit from the university, moved to Amsterdam. The day after I got my keys for my one year lease Amsterdam apartment, they brought us all in on the Monday and basically explained that the crypto market had gone really badly. Obviously, this is a story that doesn't make sense in 2021 because Bitcoin's at an all time high right now. But, but that's a different that's a, that's story. A different story. Uh, but but they basically they they'd done like a initial coin offering, raised 14 million dollars in air quotes. That had become 1.4 million dollars by the time we had this meeting, and we had like 30 people, 35 people on the team, which is way too big. And basically, they were like, "Yeah, we're running out of money." We need to, you know, stop the bleed. So we're going to be letting some people go, uh, which ended up being about, I don't know, three quarters, 80% of the company. So it was really, uh, really bad timing. That is awful. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was, no, it's, it's, it's fine though, because like, like anything, you have to kind of be able to see the funny side of things. And, you know, there's obviously an important lesson there is like, if you don't get the concept and you're not that convinced by the people who are telling you it, then, then maybe okay. reconsider. And then the other side of it is, you know, less than a month later, I started working officially for Block Data. I'd, I'd worked with them right when they were founding, like basically right when they registered as a company, as I wrote their first like blog post which was their manifesto and right when I lost my job I got they, they just raised some money from some investors and they finally had budget to you know get some office space and yeah uh, hire somebody so I joined as the first employee and so you know it worked out really nicely really beautifully and mm-hmm. so I you know I I wouldn't take that back because I'm happy with where I am now. And it's like, you know, if I change one thing in my timeline, does it change mm-hmm. where I am now? Possibly. So, mm-hmm. but it, but it was a good, it was a really good lesson for me. And I, I hope that anyone listening to this might just, just don't be afraid to ask questions. And if people, okay. if people don't want to give you answers to questions, that's a red flag. Like it's perfectly fine if they say, you know what? We're not really sure. We have some theories about it or we're doing experiments on this, you know, the viability of this thing. If you get dismissed out of hand, like that kind of arrogance is not is not a good sign. I'll definitely keep that in mind as well. Please do. Um, I mean, I haven't had an experience like that. But, you know, I in the past, I always found it difficult to to ask some of these questions especially some of the, you know, maybe, ju- I don't want to say juicy, but kind of, yeah, but like the question, like, how do you make money? That can be quite awkward already for people, depending on the culture. Yeah. But like, if that's necessary for me to understand the business and what I'm getting myself into, I think that's a very important question. And, you know, figuring out how to ask these types of questions is powerful. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, depending on the personality of the founder or whatever you do want to you don't want to pose questions in a way that they're likely to be answered and having some kind of tact about how you talk about things is really important Mm -hmm. and you know some startups are in stealth mode and they don't really want to talk about what they do and that's that's fine but yeah i think uh if you're gonna if you're gonna put your time which is your most valuable resource if you're gonna put your time towards something like into your career then you should understand what you're getting into and and if Mm -hmm. they don't have answers to these questions that is actually okay you just it's good that that's out in the open so that you can help them explore and and help figure out the reason for being for this company. Exactly. Do you have any other disaster story that you would like to share or rather not? (laughs) (laughs) I can't possibly imagine what you're talking about, but uh, um, (laughs) yeah, I guess like I've got, I mean, the the reason for pausing is that there's like a few spring to mind and I'm thinking about what could be most instructive. Uh, But um, I would say that like the the job that I started last May for a company based in San Francisco before before eggplant yeah I I I was there for three months I they they let me go on the last day of my probation period that was like that was really frustrating because I I really loved the company I liked uh, you know pretty much all the people I worked with amazing product a lot of opportunity to learn I think the the problem there was that it was really the first kind of bigger 
tech company I worked at and they had, I said a thousand earlier, it was actually about 700 people. You know, I guess like you don't want to spend too much time picking apart everything you've done wrong in life. I think that's a a recipe for disaster, but a bit of healthy reflection is important. I think I I didn't have the the experience of just the kind of day-to-day operations of a bigger company and the kinds of things that are expected of you. I don't think I was able to get honest enough feedback from my boss I think that I did it. I spent a lot of effort on documenting my work and trying to show what I was doing and, you know, provide sources and everything. The other issue was that my boss held me back from doing much at the beginning. You know, she didn't want to overwhelm me with all these new processes, all this work, all these, all this technology I had to get to grips with. The thing is, though, when you're, especially when you're doing like content writing and that kind of stuff, you really do learn by doing. And I think being, um, being, you know, sort of protected from doing that was actually quite harmful because I didn't, uh, I didn't get to grips with things as quickly as I, as I wanted to. And I didn't have, I didn't have the exposure that I needed to, to, you know, the, the process of like, how do they do collaborative editing? How do they get various stakeholder approval for stuff we're writing about? You know, by the time the job ended, I was actually doing those things and I was really enjoying it. And I think if I'd gotten to do those a bit earlier, it would have, it would have been better. But, but equally, I think, uh, where I've ended up now is is a much more is a much better fit for me because it's giving me the opportunity to to work in product marketing, which is what I realized earlier this well kind of mid last year is what I actually want to do. So yeah, I think it's you know ultimately a blessing. I think this is a really nice way of finishing because we're actually kind of finished where we started. Yeah, and I'm really happy to hear that you're so happy in your current position, and I hope that this will continue. Thank you. Looking at the time, we're also at the end of the podcast, and I've kept you for much longer than i had anticipated i'm so sorry but this was so nice and i really really enjoyed the session with you absolutely i i I had a lot of fun it was really nice talking to you melissa and yeah i think it's i think it's great that you're spending your time talking to people and you know hearing about their experiences and sharing them with the world because you know i think it's like i love podcasts and i you know that's how i learn about so many different topics and you know i could probably spend another hour just talking about things that i've learned from podcasts so yeah so i think it's awesome that you're doing this and i really appreciate being invited on Thank you so much for taking the time. Do you still have any final message words, piece of advice that you'd like to finish with before we close up? Something that you want other aspiring, maybe not entrepreneurs, but aspiring startup ecosystem participants who would, I don't know, something that they should know? Yeah, I think I do. Um, I would tell people that the skills and talents that they have are much more transferable than they might realize. You know, my job is basically to try and communicate a perfect midpoint between technical people and business people right just to put it very generically but the reason why i'm able to do this is because i've always been interested in communication i've always been interested in you know learning things from people and trying to pass on things that i've learned to others so yeah i would say that the the things that make you good at what you're good at you know what where your interests lie those are the same skills which are going to make you really successful in your career yeah and I, I one thing I wanted to add to that on this topic of of learning and transferability is that I listen to a bunch of podcasts and I'm convinced it's probably the best way to get to an okay level of understanding about pretty much any topic it's uh hearing people have a conversation about something I think is much more incisive and useful than reading about it mainly because uh, writing is really hard and not many people do it but everybody's willing to talk and have a conversation so for me I found this really helpful in the last couple of years especially professionally any single topic that I wanted to learn about I've been able to find podcasts that help me learn about those things and it's been incredibly helpful with job interviews so getting to know um, a particular company or even like an industry in general or a, a kind of particular use case that's been really helpful for me so yeah I would I would recommend that if people are you know looking into working at a startup or thinking about starting their own thing listen to podcasts that are about that problem that you're trying to solve or you know about that particular industry or you know the the technology that you want to work with listen to podcasts of people talking about it and whether they've had a good experience with it and what they've learned from it that's i think that single most useful piece of advice I could give. If any one of our listeners wants to get in touch with you or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Oh, uh, great question. I have, yeah, so if they want to find me, um, I have a website, jaspercasey.com. Yeah, and you can find me on LinkedIn or various other places. Um, If you have questions, 
yeah, just please reach out to me and I'd be happy to answer them. Perfect. Thank you so very much. It was so nice to have you in the podcast. And I hope that everyone out there enjoyed it as well. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, then hear you next time.